If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John 8. We're going to go through verses 12 through 20. John 8, the Gospel of John 8, verses 12 through 20. You know, we live in a dark, sin-cursed world, and every one of us has been affected by darkness. Every one of us has been affected by sin. That's why we're affected by darkness. Darkness is another word for sin. And in our text tonight, we see Jesus, the light, excuse me, willing to dispel the sinful darkness of our lives. Let's read John 8, verses 12 through 20. And again, or again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself, and your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I came, for I know where I came from, and I know where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witnesses about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you that Jesus is the light of our dark world. We thank you that he illuminates our lives, God, with his salvation, with his sanctification, and one day with his glorification. God, help us to listen to the words of Christ today and to let him light our path each and every moment of every day. In Christ's name we pray. You know, when I was a teenager, I went camping with my older cousin. He was like a, he was almost like an uncle to me because he was older than me. I went, and I went with him and his wife And we camped in the Blue Ridge Mountains, which were absolutely beautiful. Well, one day we decided to go to one of the caverns there. And as we walked into this cave, it was getting dark. I mean, it was getting very dark. However, the guide that we had had a light, so we were able to see where we were going. And during the the tour, the guide stopped and began to explain the different features of the cave. You know, those things hanging down and this and that, that section and that section. And then he said that he was going to shut his light and we were going to be in pitch or experience pitch blackness. And when he shut his light, man, it was pitch black. I mean, you think, you know, when you go to bed at night and you shut the lights off, you think it's dark. But this was pitch black. I could have put my hand like this and I couldn't see a thing. I mean, it was dark. You didn't dare move for fear of stumbling because you didn't know where what was. If there was a little hole or a rock, you didn't know. So you didn't move. But without Christ, spiritually, we're in pitch blackness. We grope about in darkness. Only the light of Christ can light our way so we don't stumble. 
And here's what I want to propose to you tonight. We desperately need light. And the light we need is Christ, who alone can take us out of the darkness of sin, even in the midst of rejection and controversy. And that's what we'll see in our text tonight. And our text tonight is actually a continuation of John 7, verse 52. Now, you might say, well, why are you skipping over John 7, 53 to John 8, 11? Why are you skipping over that? And I'll explain, if you have that thought in your mind. Most scholars believe that John 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11, which is the account of the woman caught in adultery, was not part of this text. As a matter of fact, some Bible versions might have the account of the woman caught in adultery in brackets, or maybe a footnote, or maybe included somewhere else in your Bible. And the reason for this is very simple. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts do not have this text. However, some later manuscripts do include it, but in other places of the Bible, not where we have it in our Bible today. Dr. R.C. Sproul says, The overwhelming consensus of textual critics is that it was not part of the original Gospel of John, at least not this portion of John. At the same time, the overwhelming consensus is that this account is authentic, it's apostolic, and it should be contained in any edition of the New Testament. Whether it belongs here in John's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, where some ancient manuscripts place it, or, or somewhere else is a question I leave for the ages. But I believe it is nothing less than the very word of God. So I will treat it as such, a, as such in this chapter. And I agree with him. So, but the last time I spoke on John, I ended at 752. Now the reason why I'm not picking it up at verse 53 and continuing through chapter 8 verses 1 to 11. Which is the account of the woman caught in adultery. Is not because I don't think it's part of scripture. I do. But because I preached on this in February 2013. The last time I spoke on John is where he claimed to be the source of living water. If any of you remember that. Now he claims to be the light of the world. Which logically follows his claim to be the source of living water. So to put all that together. If you read John 7.52 and skip to John 8.12. You will immediately see the continuation flow of thought. See. The woman caught in adultery breaks the flow. So that's why many believe that it really wasn't a part of that section in the Bible. Nonetheless, we believe it was part of the Bible. But we're going to go to John 8, um, 12, where is where I left off the last time. So let's get into our text. Now, there are three points I want you to see in this section. The first one is Christ gives the invitation to follow light. Jesus invites us to follow him so we don't walk in darkness. Jesus is, at this point, he's in the midst of a hostile crowd. Uh, Once again, uh, he welcomes the people in the midst of controversy, in the midst of this hostility. He invites people to come to him. See, Jesus is never intimidated by people. And he says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Now this is the second I am of seven. There's seven I am statements in John's gospel. The other one which we looked at uh, maybe a year ago is I am the bread of life. Next one is I am the door of the sheep in John 10. 
also in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. And in John 11, he says, I am the resurrection of the life. And John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And in John 15, he says, I am the vine. And once again, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now the Greek word for I am is ego aimi. I don't think you have to know that, but that's, you might hear a preacher now and then say that. Ego aimi, it's a very famous Greek word for I am. It literally means I am, I am. And which can be translated, I am who I am. And this is the great name that God claimed for himself in the Old Testament, if you read it in Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse 14. And now, it is this, it is if Jesus is saying, I am God, the light of the world. And let me say this. The Pharisees knew exactly what he meant. We have many today that would deny the divinity of Christ, that call themselves Christians, that would actually deny the divinity of Christ. And say Jesus never claimed it. Well, here is, a, is proof. And, and, and to make that proof even clearer, the, the Pharisees knew exactly what he meant. You could read that in many places of the Bible. There was no question what Jesus meant. When he said, I am, he was talking about the I am, the God of the Old Testament. And that's why the Pharisees said, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true, which I'll speak about in a little while. John in chapter 1 already touched upon the theme of light. In John 1, first chapter, verses 4 to 9, he says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. You see, Jesus brought illumination, and he brought understanding of the truth when he came into the world. Now let's take a trip back in time when Jesus spoke these words and get a feel of this passage. This is important to get uh, understand what was going on culturally back then and religiously. According to John 8.20, the scene occurred in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Now the treasury was not a building, but 13 trumpet-shaped treasure boxes located in the section of the temple complex called the Court of the Woman. <clears throat> It was called the court of the woman because this is where women were permitted to go at that time. This was one of the busiest parts of the temple and a perfect place for Jesus to do what he wanted to do. And that was to proclaim himself as the light of the world in the treasury on the day following the feast of the tabernacles. Two things happened at this feast. Last time I spoke on John, I I touched upon it. The first one was which we already looked at in chapter 7, was the pouring out the water by the priest on the altar. And it probably at that precise moment as the priest was pouring out the, mo- the water, that Jesus spoke up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart would flow livings, uh, rivers of living water. But the second part was called the illumination of the temple, which was a nightly counterpart of the daily water pouring ceremony. The first part was the water during the day was the water pouring on the temple and the second part was the illumination of the temple. Now we need to picture this. Where Jesus was speaking 
Okay? Which was the court of the woman. There were four huge bright candelabra. Or which we call today the menorah. Which the Jews use, uh, which the Jews call today the menorah. And was a reminder of the Jew of how God guided Israel in the wilderness by a pillar of fire. I mean, these lights were big torches. They would light up the whole temple and much of the Jerusalem sky. And after the torches were lit, there was a great celebration. And the people and even the most dignified leaders danced around the candelabra with torches in their hands, singing songs of praises, and the Levites prayed musical instruments. This was, this was a big celebration, just like this, the celebration of the pouring of the water on the altar. This was big. This was big to them. This, this they took very seriously. And this would happen, this celebration would happen throughout the night. Now it was against that backdrop of the ceremony that Jesus raised his voice about the crowd and proclaimed, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, the candelabra, the menorah's light, eventually dies out. But Christ's light will never go out. Jesus is light to a dark world. Because Jesus claimed to be the light, he was not only claiming to be God, but he's also claiming and telling the Jews that he was Israel's Messiah. You see, Jesus alone brings light of salvation to a sin-cursed world. Only the Messiah can do that. Isaiah prophesied about this way before Jesus came into the world. Isaiah tells us that this... Uh, that the servant of the Lord was appointed as a light to the Gentiles. Listen to Isaiah 49 verse 6. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant. To raise up the, root, the, tribe, the tribes of Jacob. And to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Light and salvation was never ever meant for for Israel alone. It wasn't. However, salvation came through Israel. Jesus was born a Jew. And the light of his glorious gospels went to the Jew first. But as a whole, they rejected it. John 1.11 John 1, says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. You see, the light of Christ came to his own Israel... But his own Israel did not receive him. So the light went to the rest of the world, the Gentiles, you and me. How great is that? How awesome is that? Another thing we need to know is Jesus is not just a bearer of light. He doesn't just bear light. He doesn't carry a torch around saying, I'm the light of the world. He is the light. Just like he says he is the way. He's not a way. He's not a truth. He is the truth. He's not a life. He is the life. Listen, Jesus is our light of salvation in our sin-cursed being. He's our light of truth in our darkness of falsehood. He's our light of wisdom in the darkness of our ignorance. He's the light of holiness in the darkness of our sin. He's the light of joy in the darkness of our sorrow. And he's the light of life in the darkness of death. Now, as I said before, when the Jews lit the menorah, during the celebration, the torches eventually went dim and died out. But also the menorah was stationary. Right? It was died out, but it was stationary. Now as I said before, when the Jews lit the menorah during the celebration, the torches went out. 
But on the contrary, Jesus' light never goes out, and his light is to be followed. We have to follow the light. What did Israel do in the wilderness? They followed the cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night. And Jesus calls us to follow him. Jesus is a light to the world and calls us to follow the light out of darkness into his glorious light of salvation. Jesus is not interested in mere intellectual assent of him as a savior and Lord, but fully devoted follower of Christ. And we touched upon this in the class today. Jesus is not interested in just a mental and mental assent. He's interested in following him. The Greek word follows can be used in the general sense, the crowds, the crowds follow Jesus. But in this context, it refers to following Christ wholeheartedly. The Greek word is also a participle in the present tense and means to continue or to keep on continuing to following him. In other words, wholehearted followers follows, follow Christ continuously. And I think the, script, the scriptures illustrate the principle of wholehearted followers of Christ unambiguously. For example, in Luke 9, verses 23 to 24, Jesus made this striking statement about discipleship. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In Mark 8, verses 18 to 22, he says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now this doesn't sound like half-hearted followers of Christ, who Jesus was calling. However, when you have been forgiven much, you will love Jesus much, and following him is not going to be a burden. It just won't be. It's a whole lot easier than walking in darkness and stumbling. Amen. Following Christ is so much easier. And we have this great hope that if we follow Jesus, we will never walk in darkness. Not only will we never walk in darkness, but we also have the light, have his light, beaming out of our lives. Christ's light will light us up to the world. We will be lights shining for Christ. Jesus right now is shining through his church. But sometimes if we admit, our light grows dim. Bill Hain tells a story to illustrate the point. The headlight on my old farm truck grew dimmer as the years passed. And I was puzzled. The lights were still burning. The wires seemed okay in spite of the mice and the occasional snake I had to chase out. And yet the lights became so dim as to be almost useless. Well, one day I decided to take a chance and invest in new headlights, in spite of the fact the old ones appeared to burn just fine. When I removed the old headlights, I realized the mirror coated, coating behind the, the filament had gradually flaked off. And though the filament burned brightly, there was nothing to reflect the light outwardly. Now, we're not the source of spiritual light. Only Christ is. But like the mirrored coating in the headlight, we are meant to reflect the source. If we are not careful, the cares of this life 
right? The stress of life it will diminish our ability to reflect Christ as we should. And that's when we must rely on the Holy Spirit to recoat and repolish our weary, weary souls that we might once again effectively reflect God's glory. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. We only reflect the light, and that's why we preach Jesus and not ourselves. God in the beginning created light by his word, and there was no light, and now his creative word gives us spiritual life and understanding of the gospel where there was previously none. Light exposes our sin, but also it exposes the glory and the holiness of God. For the unbeliever, the light of the gospel exposes their sin. And Jesus Christ's willingness to forgive the sinner. For a Christian, as Dr. Kent Yu says, we are given light to illuminate our steps as we walk through this life. And the light comes into us so, we, so it can go out to others, making us to be light and life to them. That's a wonderful truth for all of us. Sadly, sadly, many reject the light, which is our second point. The rejection of the light. If we reject the light of Christ, we walk in eternal darkness. The Pharisees' rejection of Christ is apparent by the accusation they made in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. See, they found fault with Jesus' testimony and his, or his statement, and they based their unbelief on a technicality, discrediting, discrediting Jesus' testimony. And this is the te- technicality they used. According to the Old Testament law, truth had to be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And we see this in Numbers, we see this in Deuteronomy, we see this in various places in the New Testament. And this is technically true. They were technically right. Plus Jesus himself said in John 5.31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So the Pharisees are probably using Jesus' own words from chapter 5. Probably to catch him in a contradiction. But his testimony um, is valid without witnesses. Is his testimony valid without witnesses? Or does his testimony need witnesses? Which is it? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Well, in John chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus was saying that his testimony alone, his single witness, no matter how true it was, wouldn't stand in their court of law. So what Jesus did was, he gave them witnesses. He gave them John the Baptist, the scriptures, his own works, and his father's witness. He approached it on their human level. However, here in chapter 8, Jesus says he doesn't need witnesses because he spoke of himself as a divine person and that's the way he should be looked at. First, in chapter 5, he was approaching it on a human level. That's why he gave them witnesses. On the, in chapter 8, he's approaching it on a divine level. God doesn't need any witnesses, does he? In other words, he is God and God does not need witnesses to be true. Since Jesus is God, he speaks only truth and doesn't need witnesses. 
The demand for two or three witnesses that the Pharisees were telling Jesus was for the court of law. Technicality can distort the truth. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did with Jesus' statement about himself being the light and what many people do today. One thing I notice when I share the gospel with unbelievers who refuse to come to Christ is that they base their unbelief on some technicality. For example, when I say to them, the Bible says you must be born again or repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They almost say without hesitation, oh, but that, the Bible was written by men. Or if they have some knowledge of the history of the Bible, they might say, the Bible has mistakes. Now, technically, they're right. Technically, they are right. Men wrote the Bible. However, it is inspired men by God who wrote the Bible. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Or, as the New King James Version says, given by inspiration of God. Technically, it was written by men, but they ignorantly or conveniently left out inspired men. The Bible was written by fallible humans, and although we don't have any of the original manuscripts called the autographs, we have thousands of copies of the original scriptures. And there are mistakes in some of these sections. However, the mistakes are so minute, they're so small, that it doesn't by, at all, by any stretch of the imagination, take away from the message. Don't forget, we don't have the originals. So men copied, and there were thousands copied. So there might be a little comma missing here, or a word here or there they missed, but it never took a word away from the message of the gospel. Never or any of the Old Testament prophets. How does Jesus respond to their accusation of being a false witness of himself? Well, Jesus gives them, gives them three evidences to support his claim. The first is his divine origin and destiny. He says in verses 14 and 15, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from. Or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now Jesus knew where he came from. His origin. And knew where he was going. His destiny. On the other hand. The Pharisees did not know where he came from. Or where he was going. And if you remember in chapter 7. They thought he was born in Nazareth. But in reality he was born in Bethlehem. They couldn't even figure out his earthly birthplace. Never mind his heavenly origin. And they certainly did not know where he was going. Jesus was always fully aware of both. Where he, was, where he came from and where he was going. In John 16 verse 28 he said, I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. He was always aware, but the Pharisees who claimed to be wise actually became fools. Their judgment of Christ was superficial, it was limited, and it was wrong. Their judgment was clouded by their pride, their arrogance, and their self-righteousness. And Jesus warned them earlier in chapter 7, not to judge by appearances, but with right judgment. And even though Jesus said, I judge no one, does not necessarily mean he never judges. He may have meant, 
He judges no one according to the flesh, externally or superficially, which he didn't. As his enemies did. They judged superficially, externally. Or he may have meant that he did not judge anyone yet simply because as John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world or to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I like what Dr. Carson says about this verse. He says, but that does not mean that Jesus does not judge in any sense. His purpose was to save, not to condemn. But his very presence guarantees that humanity divides around him. And a large part of it correspondingly judged by him. Indeed, the Son of Man has been given unique authority to judge precisely because of who he is. But in the future, Jesus will judge as the Father has given him all judgment. You see, the Pharisees' judgment was distorted as so many are today. Sometimes when I'm in a conversation with someone about Jesus or about salvation, and the other person rejects, rejects what I'm saying and emphatically quotes the Bible, but they quote it all the time out of context. And they're adamant about it. And I have to either sit back and laugh inside or, or just feel sorry for them. Sometimes I do both. The judgment is wrong because it is clouded by false ideas about interpretation. Christians are not exempt from this. I have been in a conversation with some Christians who know and love God and are truly born again. But all their Christian lives, they were under bad teaching and sometimes will argue against the clear teachings of Scripture. That's right. It's like, but I'm showing you what the Scripture... Well, I, you know, I, don't, I wasn't taught that. But the Scriptures are teaching you that. See, their judgment is wrong because it is clouded by bad theology. Second evidence to his claim that his testimony is true is supported by his divine nature shared with his father. He says in verse 16, Yet even I, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the father who sent me. Now no one can make this claim but Christ. He says, I judge no one. And yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. But Jesus, because as the Puritan John Gill said, he has, he saw not as man did, nor looked unto and judged according to the outward appearances of things, but looked into the heart and knew what was in it, being the searcher and the trier of it, to whom all things are naked and open, and therefore cannot be deceived or imposed upon. His judgment must be sure and infallible. But he was also not separate from his father. In other words, he was one with the father in judgment. And claiming one with the Father in judgment is claiming equality with God. The Jew, the, by the way, John's gospel is, is a Christological gospel. I mean, it's all about Christ being divine. And I don't know how people can miss that. I, I really don't. But the Jews believe God is the righteous judge. And Jesus made the same claim. There are people that doubt or refuse to believe Jesus is as much God as the Father. They will even use scripture, but of course, always out of context. You see, Jesus never said, directly anyway, I am God, but always claimed equality with his Father, which is saying the same thing. And we see throughout John's Gospel, Christ's divinity revealed. Third and final evidence to his claim 
that his testimony is true is supported by two witnesses, himself and his father. Verse 17 and 18. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am one who bears witness about myself, and the father who sent me bears witness about me. In other words, he's saying, okay, your law says you need two or three witnesses. I'm going to give you two witnesses, but I'm going to give you divine witnesses, my father and myself. Jesus had the witness of the father. He really needed no more. But that's the way Jesus did things many times. He came down to their level to show them their ignorance and Hopefully they will come to their senses. We all have the witness of the Holy Spirit. We need no more. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children in God, of God. No, you don't have to argue with people. You know, I had this guy, one guy at work one time tell me, claims to be a Christian. I, I have my sincere doubts about him. But I was working with him on there a few years ago and he said... Um, my spirit is not really bearing witness that you're really a true Christian. So I turned around to him. I said, well, what, what, what you, you could think what you think about me, but my salvation is not based on what you feel. My salvation is based on the word of God and what the word of God tells me. Third and final point is the result of rejecting the light. Verse 19, they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would, knew my, you would know my father also. When they asked to see his father, were they asking to see Joseph? Now, even though Joseph was probably dead by then, in light, of, in light of verse 41, the Pharisees were mocking Jesus as illegitimate because they knew Joseph was not his real father. In any case, they rejected the light. They rejected the light. And Jesus makes a clear and simple statement. You neither know me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. They were blinded by darkness. You see, Christ's light became darkness to them. They did not know God. Later on, in the same chapter, verse 42, the Pharisees claimed to be children of God. Jesus told them, if God were your father... You would love me, for I came from God. Listen, there is one thing that is ultra clear in the scriptures. In John 5.23, Jesus told the Jews, Whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent them. If you don't honor the Son, you don't know God. And there are so many people in the world who claim to know God as their Father, but they reject the Son. You cannot know God the Father and reject the Son. And on the other hand, you cannot, you cannot know the Son and reject the Father. Their testimony is one. The Father bears witness to the Son, and the Son bears witness to the Father. Also, there are those who claim to know Jesus, and many of you have met people like this, but whenever you say anything that Jesus about Jesus, they reject it. Jesus says, you must be born again. Oh, I don't believe that. Jesus said to follow me. Oh, I don't believe that. <laughs> well, what then do you believe? Well, I go to church. I'm a good person, etc., etc., etc. They reject the Son if they believe their good works will get them to heaven. They reject the Son. If you can say all you want, I believe in Jesus, I believe, but if you reject what He says, guess what? 
You're rejecting the person behind those words. And if you reject the person behind those words, guess what? You're rejecting God Almighty. If we follow the light, we know and honor God. And we are followers illuminating his light to others. That's the bottom line. As Christians, we want to illuminate our light. We want our light to illuminate to others so we can tell people to allo- about, about their sin to a lost and dying world about Christ, who is the only light for their lives. Let me conclude with this illustration. <clears throat> there is not much more in life as beautiful as a full moon on a clear night. I think most of you would agree with me on that. If you're by the ocean or a lake, you can see the water reflecting its illuminating light. For a married couple walking on the beach at night holding hands with the moon overshadowing them, nothing could be more romantic than that. But yet the moon does not have its own light. We see the moon reflecting the sun's light. It's the sun that gives the moon its glory. Apart from the sun's light, we would see no moon at all. And if we look through a telescope without the sun reflecting Oh, we're at the moon reflecting the sunlight. All we would see is a ball of gray ash. The sun gives the moon its radiance. Christ is our light. He gives us our radiance. When we follow him by faithful, by faithful submission and obedience, we are radiant with his glory. And his light through us will touch other lives. But when we fall into disobedience, the light grows dim. And the joy and the power diminish. And we become confused and weary. When that happens, we need to, by faith, submit to the will of God. And if you never experienced Christ's life, and your heart's desire is to to get this, this is how. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Submit yourself to the truth. Admit you're a sinner and that no good thing dwells in you to gain God's favor. Ask Christ to forgive you based on his sacrificial death on the cross. If and when you do that, you will begin, guaranteed, because God makes promises and does not lie, you will begin to walk in light. And when it is all said and done, in heaven there will be no more sun, no more moon to reflect the sun, to reflect the sun's light, because God Himself will be our light. Let's close with two verses from Revelation. Revelation 21, verses 22 to 24. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the, the Lord God Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp, its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. In, Ver- in Revelation 22.5 And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For God, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God. Father, we thank you that you truly are our light. Your word says your lamp, your word is a lamp for our feet, a light for our path. And Jesus, you are the living word. You light our way. 
You show us our sin. You show us the forgiveness of our sins. And God, you save us and you put your light in us that we could illuminate your radiance, your glory to others. God, help us to continuously walk in the light. And when we fail, just to repent and turn to you so you can make us bright again to a lost and dying world in Christ's name. Let's get ready for communion. And as the ushers are coming to give you the elements, let's think of why we have light and how that's been made possible. It made, it's been made possible through the death, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we take the elements today, let's not only think of his death and his resurrection and how we're now brought into the body of Christ and now we're forgiven by his blood, but how he has given us his light and how we, his light guides us through life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these elements which represent his body, your son's body and his blood. We ask you to bless them, Father. We ask you to bless them. And God, help them not just to be elements, but help us to, help us to remember they represent the body and blood of Christ. Which, what Christ did on the cross for us. And how he suffered and died and shed his blood. So that we might be brought into the family of God. That we might be called sons of God. That we might be forgiven and be light bearers. Thank you, Father. For your word. Thank you for your broken body. Thank you for your shed blood in Christ's name.